are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Frost. Stephen's had a pretty interesting journey. He started off as an academic in Australia with a PhD in Asian studies. He cycled from Kathmandu to Colombo, and in the early 2000s, he moved to Hong Kong, where he started out working for one of the first CSR NGOs, just when CSR was becoming a thing. He's still in Hong Kong today, but has crisscrossed the sustainability sector, in and out of academia, and going into business himself with a CSR consulting firm. Today, he's an honorary institute fellow at the Chinese University of Hong Kong Business School and co-founder of GoBlue. GoBlue is the sustainability accelerator for apparel and textile companies, providing brand level, supply chain level, and communication services to clients all around the globe. Stephen leads GoBlue's marketing and communications work, part of which includes the GoBlue newsletter, which we'll talk about more throughout the show. In part one of our conversation, we chatted to Stephen about how CSR within the fashion industry has evolved throughout his career, and he shares his views on how it's been perceived in the world of manufacturing. He also reflected on what surprised him and what he's learned through his engagement with manufacturers over the years. In this episode, Stephen reflects on the gaps he perceives in the sustainable fashion conversation and what he wishes different stakeholders at the sustainable fashion table understood about one another. Our episodes this week are thanks to our collaboration with JZ Fabric. The Fabric project is commissioned by the German Federal Ministry for Economics, Cooperation and Development and supports the Asian textile industry in its transformation towards fair production for people and the environment. Stephen was a speaker on the 11th edition of GIZ Fabric's online seminar series called Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation for our homepage. To find out more about the GIZ Fabric Project and the seminar series Getting Through the Crisis Together, Asian Dialogues on Sustainability in the Textile and Garment Industry, check out the links we've put in our show notes. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. So, Stephen, you're the editor of the Go Blue newsletter, which, as we noted in part one, is the most comprehensive roundup of sustainable fashion news that at least I've come across, and it's free. So if you're not already a subscriber, highly recommend checking it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. But as we also mentioned in part one, every week there are over a hundred links to articles about sustainable fashion news. So as someone who's really sort of got their finger on the pulse and seeing what the kind of stories are both as you know both related to brands as well as to as well as within the supply chain what's your take on what's missing from the conversation what aren't you seeing being talked about that you think should be talked about so yeah you know, you'll notice if you if you look at it week in week out I, there's always fires 
you know, so I'm always interested in, in fire safety. And you asked about gaps. I think that's a significant gap. Um, I, I think, I think there's very little attention, um, outside of Bangladesh. And even then, I think Bangladesh is still, it's still only looking at one layer. That's the tier one BGMEA factories uh, for fire safety. They're not looking at warehousing chemicals. They're not looking at companies making poly bags. Um, you know, they're not looking at, um, um, tanneries, et cetera. Yeah. You know, wet processing. The country that is far and away the greatest fire risk of all the production countries in the world is India by a margin of about, I don't know, fivefold. Everything from cotton gins through to chemical factories, so chemical factories making pigments and dye stuff and other ancillaries for textile production, um, through to domestic producers and foreign producers. And it's a source of some frustration to me to see how little attention is placed on fire safety, which claims a, an inordinate amount of lives per year. Um, staggering. The newsletter will morph into something more sophisticated in the next month or so. Um, I'm, I'm putting all of this into a database online. Um, at the moment, I've got over 10,000 articles cross-referenced and searchable in the database, and that will continue um, as we go forward. And that'll be a place where people can come and search. So instead of reading newsletter week by week and then thinking, oh, where did I see that story mm. on, uh, wasn't there a story on Myanmar about, uh, you know, some problem? Where was that? You know, now it's all in a database and, and researchable. And, and when you pick up the article, there'll be a link to articles that, that you know, it can cross-reference to. If one of the gaps you see in the conversation is that the industry still can't get a handle on something that's as easily verifiable as fire safety through these social compliance audits, like it kind of go, goes back to the question, like why, what is going on here? You know, I, I, I agree. I mean, fire safety is one of the, is easily checkable. Yeah. You know, do you have a sprinkler system? Does it work? You know, I think back to the Nandan denim fire. So Nan, Nandan Denim is one of the biggest denim producers in the world. They had a fire last year in one of their factories, and I think seven workers died. And Nandan Denim produced, yeah, it's a publicly listed company in India. And yeah, it had, it had been through the whole, yeah, obviously been through the whole auditing process. Um, the fire didn't really do much to its uh, stock price. But I think, I think one of the things that's missing from the conversation here about the fires is, the fire safety across multiple tiers. Fire safety has focused on the point of fabrication, you know, the final step. So does the BGMEA factory that exports the product to market, you know, is its fire safety? Its fire safety is probably pretty good. But what I'm saying is that, that, well, what about, what about if you go down from there? And of course, once you move out from that first tier, 
a lot of brands of even even you know quite sophisticated brands when it comes to sustainability still have no real handle on what the next two or three tiers looks like, except in some kind of broad, vague sense, okay, about where things might come from. But but you know here's the thing that's missing is the manufacturer's voice in this. I ran a conference. The first conference my consulting firm ran in 2004 or early 2005 was a conference in China called the Supply Chain Talks Back. And my overly optimistic objective was that we would have manufacturers talking to buyers about oh. their world. And we, you know, I'm, I look back at it now and think how naive I was, but we, we we got manufacturers who who stood up and talked about their life. And it was in those days that I started talking to manufacturers saying, look, you guys need to get together. You need to get together and develop a code of conduct for buyers. You know, there needs to be a manufacturer's code of conduct for buying. And And you talk to manufacturers and they say, yes, 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 that's what we need. But we're not, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to start talking to, you know, we don't want other manufacturers to know what we're doing. And so there was no appetite for taking it to the next step. So I'm quite intrigued when I saw the Star Network pop up. Yeah. I thought, oh, okay. Because there does need to be a manufacturer's voice. The Star Network is the first inter-Asian network of producer associations. In other words, it's suppliers coming together, talking to each other, and advocating collectively, which is pretty unheard of in the fashion industry. And for listeners interested in the Star Network, we highly recommend going back to check out episode 29 and episode 30 when we talk to Miran Ali, the spokesperson for the Star Network. And we should also flag that the Star Network is really the brainchild of our friends at GIZ Fabric, with whom we've collaborated on a lot of episodes this season, including this one. Look, I, look, I understand. I get it's a, it's a buyer and a seller relationship. And if you're selling something, you know, you're, you're the one looking up, right? <laughs> And, you know, you've got to meet specifications and you've got to meet quality and you've got to meet, you know, price and delivery and all that sort of stuff. But that doesn't mean you should be a completely passive recipient of everything that comes down the tube at you. And I think during coronavirus was the first time I really started hearing this being spoken about. You know, finally people like, what have we got to lose? You know? Yeah. <laughs> we, we're, we're in the crocodile jaw. If it doesn't work out, the crocodile will swallow us anyway. So let's go for it. And, you know, Bangladesh did that. Bangladesh spoke back. So until I, until I think we've got a, until, until there's a, a relationship where, where manufacturers have a voice and, and buyers take that voice seriously because they have some sort of skin in the game in the manufacturing. So look at the auto industry. You know, in so Thailand has a very big auto manufacturing sector. Thailand, uh, you know, Thailand makes everything for auto, including the auto, um, for all the big companies in the world. Um, 
And what I discovered in auto was, you know, Ford, Ford Motor Company would have a part and they're getting it manufactured in Thailand. And in Thailand, the people making it in Thailand look at the part and think, oh, you know, we can improve this. And they play around with it. And the next time the engineers from, you know, they talk to the engineers at Ford, they, they show them this and the, and the engineers at Ford might go, oh, damn, that's a, that's a good idea. Mm. And there's more of a, we're in this together, which, which is what I think brands are starting to look for in, in manufacturers. But you need a special kind of relationship. Or you need a different kind of relationship for that to really take root. You know, you've got to be more of partners in the game. And to be partners, you need to understand each other more. There's a lot of talking on, you know, parallel pathways at the moment. And that's actually what we, one of the, that's one of the questions we wanted to ask you about as well, because your story is, I think, pretty unique in the sense that you have inhabited a lot of different positions in the world mm, of sustainable mm. fashion. You know, you've come at it from the business, you've come at these issues from the business perspective. You've also worked for nonprofits and for NGOs. You're an educator. Um, and I think uh, you've expressed to us in our previous conversation that you sometimes feel as though these parties are sort of, like you just said now, talking past one another, or maybe even having entirely different conversations. And so I wonder if a nice way to sort of like wrap up this conversation or is to have you articulate, you know, what you wish these different entities or positions within this conversation understood about one another. So for example, what do you wish, let's start with the, with the sustainability people. What do you wish that the sustainability people within brands in the fashion industry understood about the business of fashion? Well, I, I wish they would go and work in a factory for a month. Sit in the, you know, sit in the, sit with the people who take calls all day from brands. Mm -hmm. Right. Sit with people who um, make quotations. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. No, no, yeah. really. To be on the other end of the call, you know, to, um, Yeah, you know, if you're if you're if you're working in a button factory, you know, and you're, you're sitting in this, you know, on staff, and every day you're getting calls from, uh, you know, PVH and Levi's and T Mac, you know, whoever, right, for buttons. Go and sit in that fact. Go and sit in that factory for a month, and get a feel for the pressure <laughs> that is on you, um, you know, and and what's involved in getting button blanks from Taiwan through Hong Kong into your Chinese factory, getting them shipped off to, you know, uh, you know, 500 gross to an Indonesian factory, 300 gross to a Cambodian factory, 200 gross to a Chinese factory, get them there on time. Um, <laughs> it's go so through, hard. <laughs> go through uh, iron crack tests, go through dye running tests, you know, in the washing, get them sent back. No, we don't want this shade, you know, to sit. To sit with uh, people in a factory doing samples, sit in the sampling room and have them go through 50 iterations um, where the first shade of blue that you present to the buyer is the shade of blue that they pick after 50 samples, right? And, you know, feel 
feel the pain of, <laughs> I think a lot of people, the owner, the managers, the staff, the employees in factories, every day I think they feel like they're standing in water with the water at just below their nose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one more problem or disaster or request will put the water over their nose. We used to run a lot of supplier days for brands. So, you know, brands always have supplier days, you know, mm-hmm. where the brand rolls out something. Um, you know, maybe it's maybe, maybe the brand has decided to do the HIG index. And the HIG index is a suite of sustainability measurement tools produced by the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And so now it gets mm-hmm. its major suppliers together in the room, gets all the Cambodian factories together and says, okay, we're rolling out HIG. This is what you have to do for HIG. And so they have a HIG trainer come in and they teach people how to do mm-hmm. HIG. We used to run those days. I run them for electronics firms, for sportswear, for shoes, for all sorts of companies. Um, but one time I convinced a brand that part of the supplier day should be given over to asking the manufacturers about what could make the relationship better. And the brand had to leave the room. Now, Mm. the brand didn't want to do this, but I eventually convinced them to go out of the room and we spent two hours talking to 60 manufacturers about, you know, what, what are the impediments to this relationship? What, what's not working from your perspective? We didn't want it to turn into a, a whinging festival of, you know, moaning and complaining. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to try and make it constructive, we had some activities, we had some group work, we had them in tables. And, you know, when we first asked the manufacturers, look, you know, we, we, are, we won't attribute remarks to you. You know, we're just going to give comments to the brand. They won't know who said what. They were very slow to warm up. They didn't really know what, what was going to happen. But by the end, we couldn't stop them. You know, there were so many things they wanted to input into this relationship, not just complaints. Yeah, of course, they start off complaining, you know, uh, how about they pay a higher price, you know. But, you know, know, eventually we got onto constructive stuff that, you know, this is the assistance we need. You know, if if they're going to ask us to do this, this is what, this is what would make it better. This is. And to be honest, when I look back on the 10 years that I had my company, that's one thing that I can think of that I I, 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 I really think after 10 years, there, were, there weren't so many things I did that I can really look back and think, yeah, you know, that was, I really feel that was that moved the conversation <laughs> forward a bit. And I think that did. Mm. But no one really does that. And I think that is something... Not exactly like that, but, you know, I think there are ways that you could deepen that relationship to feel like you're more in it together. Now, some some brands do this already very well. You know, some, some brands already have, you know, representatives in the largest supplier factories almost full time working on issues like overtime and, you know, th- these kinds of things. I have been doing this for years. But for every ordinary, you know, everyday ordinary brand, no. Um, that's something I'd like to see more of. I think in our current ecosystem, 
we have the、uh, pure business oriented approach, like cost effectiveness and so on and so on. We also have a CSR oriented business approach. I, I make the name, but <laughs> it's not like we have two legs, so we can standing on two boats at the same time. And what I fear is sometimes, for some brands and retailers, they they keep two boats at the same time. So when they need to to think about cost effectiveness and profits, and well, I have to say yes, there are also serious competition among brands, but they cannot keep two boats at the same time. You have to decide which boat you are going to hop on. So my impression is sometimes when when they need to think about. Cost or profits, they use a pure business-oriented, cost-oriented business approach to treat the suppliers or or look at them or or bargain the prices and so on. But when they think about the reputation and other things, they will use a CSR-oriented business approach. However, suppliers they don't have those convenience because suppliers are makers. Once they switch to one boat, they kind of. Stay on that boat. Well, you can switch between boats. You can switch from a pure cost-oriented business approach to a CSR-oriented business approach. But by switching to that, it takes time, and there are some financial risks. Yeah, and and it's a cultural. It's an organizational、yeah. cultural change. Yes, it's a it's a mind、uh, switching. You have to. It's、switch. a mind shift. Yeah, it's a mind shift. And I also think about the example you made. I think it's a.、Uh, Car industry, right? The brands also gives lots of values、mm-hmm. to the producers. There are lots of quite sufficient communications in both directions, and, and that's a that's a cultural thing again, because in garment industry you don't have this value giving. I don't think garment producers win as much as respect or value comparing with car producers. There is there is a、that、value. Was, That was one of the surprising things about when I started working with garment factories was the lack of respect. Yeah, yeah, it's that's quite a serious thing. Yeah, for these people, you know, the feeling that you know, anyone can sew. Yeah, it's a sewing machine. You know, my mother has a sewing machine. How hard can it be, right? But I think there's that feeling, right? And it's a it's an industry where it, It has traditionally been seen as having very low barrier to entry, and the history of the Pearl River Delta, you know, in southern China, is, you know, a married couple with two sewing machines making shirts, then auntie and uncle and some two cousins, and then next thing you know, you got ten machines, and then next thing you know, you got fifty. I. Yeah, but、so、if you walk into what, a big factory, boy, it's yeah, it's tough, it's right? A, it's hard, yeah. And it reminds me, in a way, like one of the things that struck me when I was working as a garment factory manager is that when I would go back to the United States for to visit friends and family, was that my peers who were, you know, I don't know, working for Google or whatever, <laughs>、um, didn't. Did had no understanding of what my job was. Like I didn't even know where to start. I couldn't explain to them because they'd never been in a factory, which was true of me too at a certain point in my life. 
Um, but explaining my job to my grandparents was easy. They understood exactly what my job was. But I, I'm conscious mm. of time, and I want to give you the chance to. I want to flip the question because we've talked now about what we, you know, what you wish sustainability people understood about the sort of operational side or the business side of fashion. But what do you wish that people who were working in the operational side or the the business side of fashion understood about sustainability? I think I would wish them to understand the risk side of it, particularly for the bigger, well-known brands, fashion brands. Um, there are lots of associated risks with what happens in the supply chain. And, and for manufacturers to, to really get that, whether we like it or not, we are linked. And so that if something happens down here in the Cambodian factory, um, it ripples through very quickly these days in less than 24 hours often into social media and then the mainstream media if it's a serious enough issue. And this has material effects on share price, perhaps sales, um, and, and in the world of ESG, in the world of investors, increasingly brands are being asked to ensure clean supply chains. And that will only come if the manufacturers really understand what's happening on that other side. Now, I think, of, of course, you could, you could pick a hundred of the big manufacturers today and they all understand this very well. But I think for many manufacturers, this connection of the risk that their factory can present in the market is, is sometimes not, is not clear. Yeah, and I it makes me think of the pay up campaign because I right. I mean I, I'm a big fan of the pay up campaign. I think they do really important work. But one of the things that I think was missing from that conversation is like, okay, yes, it, all these order cancellations were unjust. Yes, all of this was is unfair and represents a much bigger imbalance of power and you know distribute an unequal distribution of risk and reward in the fashion supply chain. All of that is true, but at the end of the day. A supplier pushing a brand to pay for an order to buy products that ultimately that brand also can't sell isn't is, isn't going to help the supplier either. You know, it's a very short sighted um, approach. Now, I understand why suppliers take it, because like you said, it's like they're in water and the water's up to just below their nose. And, you know, they you know, to be able to take a long term view is a bit of a luxury and you know, the, the brands have some responsibility to play in the fact that supply it's so difficult for suppliers to take a long-term view. But still, that's one of the things, like one of the nuances that I wish had sort of been sort of I, part I, of that conversation. I, yeah, business, business is inherently risky. Mm -hmm. Business is inherently risky. The, the pay-up campaign was, a, was an interesting one for me. It was interesting the dynamics of how that all played out for me. For my for my professional life, the factory owners have been the bad boys, right? The, the um, NGOs mm. are uh, attacking factories. They're attacking brands, but they're also attacking individual factories. There are multiple reports written on individual factories in China, India, Bangladesh, Cambodia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, factory owners, blah, blah, blah. Terrible people. Mm -hmm. um, 
But then when the brands uh, had to take a breather, think about, you know, where they're going to put their money, um, okay, we need to save the factory owners. And I think, you know, the, in Bangladesh, I think the Bangladesh, you know, Rubana Hook in Bangladesh was probably the most successful at this in generating sympathy for Bangladeshi factory owners. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be some sympathy for Bangladeshi factory owners, but you know, there are multiple, there are multiple actors in this, in this chain. Mm. And the media works on stories of good and bad, good guys, bad guys. It works on who, whom, mm-hmm. who does what to whom. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that is simplistic. Yeah, people are victims and perpetrators more often than not. Yeah, correct. But as humans, we like to think in binary Mm -hmm. uh, classifications, right? Black and white, good and evil. And on that note, Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.